this is going to come as a shock to a lot of you, but I'm not exactly a touchy, feely kind of guy. I don't exactly wear my emotions on my sleeve. In fact, some people would say that I don't wear them at all. But a couple of years ago, I had to have our 13-year-old Labrador Retriever put down. And she was a part of our family. She was a companion to me. She was always glad to see me when I got home. As the bumper sticker says, I hope to become the man that my dog thinks that I am. And the day that we put her down, Rebecca came home and she finds me just crying my eyes out. And she's amazed. And she says, I can't believe you're crying. She said, you're crying more about this dog than you cry about most people. And I said, well, I like that dog a lot more than I like most people. <laughs> I had already declared that I was not getting another dog. And then within two days, I'm dog shopping, and now I have two. So now I'm trying to become the man that they both think that I am. But seriously, I'm not by nature a person that easily shows their emotions. I don't seem to be a very sympathetic person. I don't naturally uh, feel empathy for people that are hurting. Left alone, I would be just another bald, tough guy. But the thing is, God wouldn't leave me alone. Many years ago, when I made my first trip to Africa, uh, we were in South Africa, and we spent a lot of time uh, visiting with churches who were doing work with uh, people that were suffering with HIV and AIDS. And I had one occasion where we were going to meet with a pastor, and on the way over there, he called us on the phone, and he said, well, instead of coming to my church, why don't, why don't you meet me at the hospital because I need to pray with a member of my congregation? And so we drive to this hospital, and I can remember uh, being in the parking lot and thinking to myself, I don't want to go in there. I need to figure some way, how can I figure some graceful way to get out of this? But of course, there was no graceful way, and we went into this room filled with kids with AIDS. And we went and we prayed with this gaunt little 10-year-old boy uh, that was dying of AIDS and his mom. And I remember when we left that hospital room, we got back into, into the van, and our whole group, we didn't say anything for a long time. We were just completely wrecked. A friend asked Rebecca, she said, why did Jay get invited to go on that trip? And she said, well, I think they want to break his heart so he'll do something about it. And it worked. For the for the rest of that trip, every time I would get around a big group of kids, something would happen with me and I would just get choked up like these kids that came out to meet our little plane when we landed on a dirt strip in Malawi. I would choke up every time I would get around these big groups of kids and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm the tough guy. I only cry about dogs. Like, why, why am I so moved by these kids that I don't even know. Frederick Beatner writes that whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, it is well to pay the closest attention. They're not only telling you the secret of who you are, but more often than not, the mystery of where you've come from. 
and they're summoning you to where you should go next. So I kept thinking about this feeling I was having, and somewhere in Africa, it dawned on me. You see, Rebecca and I had lost our first child when he was six months old, and it was a a devastating experience for us, as you can imagine. It was painful and life-altering, but somewhere deep inside, it created in me a passion for kids and a passion to see kids not suffer and to see kids not die for things that were easily preventable. Kids like these that our team that went to India saw a couple of weeks ago, these little boys' parents work in a brick factory in India and in the blazing heat all day, and uh, these kids never have the opportunity to uh, get basic medical care, but Peachtree has supported a medical clinic, and we got to be there and, and see it and see these little boys, and just reminded me of the kids that are suffering in our world for things that are totally preventable. So seeing these kids suffering triggered something deep in me. It's a kind of compassion that's described in Scripture with the word splognizomai. It's to be moved with compassion. It's from the Greek word splogna, meaning from the guts. It's something that comes from deep within you. It's not sort of like, oh, well, that's too bad, or what a shame. But it's, it's a feeling of this hurts me, and I'm not going to stop until I can do something about it. My former senior pastor at Willow Creek, Bill Hybels, used to call this holy discontent. It's the thing that bothers you so much that you can't just know about it, but you have to take action. Do you have a holy discontent? Is there something that moves you deep in your gut? Something beyond yourself, beyond your success, beyond the achievement of your kids, beyond your favorite football team? Something, some suffering in others that moves you deep inside. Something that makes tears come to your eyes or makes you angry. Something that creates a compassion and a determination to sacrifice to change that reality. If I ask you this morning to write down your holy discontent, a lot of us could take out a pen and uh, we could pretty quickly do that. It might be like me, it might be kids, or it might be uh, a homeless person on the street, or it might be someone caught in the web of human trafficking. It would be something that creates this intense compassion in you. I want to challenge you. If you know what your holy discontent is, I want to challenge you not to, not to hide from it, but to move toward it. If you know something that brings tears to your eyes, don't avoid it, but dig deeper into it. Because as Beekner said, God is summoning you to where you should go next. On the other hand, if you can't think of something that moves you in that way, I suggest that you need to find it. I challenge you to allow your life to be disrupted, to put yourself with people in need and discover the thing that breaks God's heart and also breaks your heart. Be intentional about being with people 
in need because until you find that thing, you really can't be the person that God fully created you to be. I'm in the last year of my doctoral program, so hopefully by this time next year, I will be Dr. Madden and I will feel as smart as Chuck Roberts. <laughs> when that happens, I've already suggested that we go back to wearing robes so I can have those cool stripes on my sleeves. <laughs> I knew that'd get a cheer, right? Uh, I'm writing my dissertation this year and my topic is how people grow spiritually by being uh, involved in mission. And during the four-year process, I've read thousands of pages, I can assure you, and uh, done a lot of research. And one of the things that's very clear is people grow when they have a disruptive kind of experience. And I think that's true whether you're in business or whether um, athletically, whatever it is, you need some kind of experience that stretches you to grow. Some of those things could be like me, seeing someone that shakes your worldview, like a little boy with AIDS in Africa. And when that happens, you have to wrestle with God. It causes you to dig deeper and ask hard questions, and it somehow changes your worldview. And guess what happens? You grow closer to Him. It's just all part of the reality of following Jesus. So if you came this morning, if you braved the rain to come here and find out how you could grow closer to Jesus by staying comfortably in your bubble, you're going to be disappointed. Because life change happens when we move beyond our normal, comfortable boundaries. When I was a kid, I used to think that camping would be a cool vacation. My dad grew up on a farm and they didn't have very much money and so he didn't really like to rough it. He said that his philosophy was if you couldn't go on vacation and have it better than you had it at home, then he'd stay at home. <laughs> That's a pretty good philosophy for vacation and one that I probably have taken on myself as I get older. But it wouldn't be a very good philosophy for spiritual growth because to grow spiritually, you have to move beyond your comfort. We need a disruption. We need an experience that shakes us enough that we reach for Jesus. I was part of the vision team that created this mission statement and the values that make up this series, and it was a real privilege to be part of that group. Uh, we met for a year. I know a lot of people thought, why don't, why don't they get on with it? Uh, but we wanted to make sure that we got it right. We wanted to make sure that we really were hearing each other and we were really hearing from God. Because ultimately, Peachtree's values have to be God's values. Our mission of joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things has to reflect the people and the things that Jesus cared about. And it's clear throughout Scripture that Jesus was moved with compassion for people that were hurting. When he saw the crowds, we are told that uh, he was moved for compassion for them. He fed them. He healed their diseases. He made the cripple walk. He made the blind see. He made the dead come back to life. He felt their pain. He wept for them. In reality, Jesus was the disruptive 
compassion of God. The way that he lived, the way that he died, and the way that he rose again. That gut-level compassion of Jesus was a disruptive force in his day, and it's still a disruptive force in our day. Because he challenges our worldview. He pushes us. He challenges our economic views, our political views, our views about relationships. It's, it's an important part of growing to be a follower of Jesus, to experience his compassion, especially in a world that is so focused on ourself. The way Jesus illustrated uh, his compassion, of course, is through telling stories. And one of those stories that I'm going to share with you this morning is the very familiar story of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify his actions. The religious expert wanted to remain comfortable, and he wanted to remain in control. I suspect that he was trying to find a loophole to follow the law by loving people that were like him. Because you see, in, in that day, what it meant to be very religious is to be clean and you didn't want to be contaminated with anyone that was unclean people like Samaritans he wanted to stay above it all however it's a funny thing Jesus compassion is always characterized by a downward pull that's one of the things that's unsettling for us because we all live our lives trying to have more achieve more a better salary, a better house, greater privileges. And yet we follow this Lord who emptied himself for the world. And then Jesus did what he often did. He told a story, a story that would have been quite offensive to those that heard it. Because he not only tells a story that involves the much disliked Samaritans, but he actually makes them the hero. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. 
if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So what if this morning I told you about a story about a homeless man down here by Kellett Chapel on the sidewalk? And he was laying there and all of us just kind of walked on by as we were on our way into church. After all, it was it was raining and we were in a hurry. A lot of us needed to get our children to programming. We don't want to be late for worship. We don't want to have our morning disrupted by this guy. Uh, we, we can probably imagine that he might have done something to deserve to be in this spot anyway, and we sort of feel like we probably deserve to be in this spot. And after all, we, we would probably figure that somebody else will stop and take care of him. I don't really need to do that. And if I told you this story that someone does, and as you leave church, you would notice that this man is being helped by someone. He's being helped by a Muslim. A Muslim man cared for him as all the people of Peachtree passed on by. We all crossed to the other side of the road. We were all too busy trying to get to church, but the Muslim stopped and cared for him right down the street from our church. How would it make you feel if I told you a story like that? Well, it would probably make you feel like, I'm glad this mission pastor doesn't preach every week because he sure is annoying. <laughs> but that's how it would have made the teacher of the law feel for the Samaritan to be the hero. And one of the reasons that it's annoying is because we can imagine it could happen just like that. If I'm honest, I can imagine I could be the priest in that story. Because like the priest, I can so easily avoid having my life disrupted. I pass by people on a regular basis that need compassion. And when we pass by avoiding people that God called us to love, it hurts them, and it hurts us, and it hurts the reputation of the church. Because in reality, the threat to God's people is not from Samaritans, but it's from hypocrisy. You see, God calls us not to pass by, but he calls us to slow down and to see what he sees and to join him in restoring those things. Well, I think we would all agree that there's a lot in our world that needs restoring. And one of those things is the foster care system in the state of Georgia. There are 13,000 kids in the foster care system, kids that have endured neglect and abuse and are shuffled from one place to another. And for the last several years, Peachtree has been trying to get more involved in this issue, and much of our inspiration has become from some of our own families. And I want to share one of their stories with you this morning.
really good friends started fostering and quite honestly it had never ever crossed my mind but it all of a sudden was a face for fostering and I thought wow we could we could do that and for me I thought you know we already have small children anyway we're kind of doing this anyway this is something that we can do and I don't think this is anything that somebody can talk you into it's, it's the actions that folks take that you look at and you say, maybe we could be a part of that. So I was very reluctant. <laughs> what have y'all been doing? Where's Reagan? He's taking a nap. Then I kind of just started very kindly. <laughs> a, little, a, little, a little bit harder than that. Asking Bert um, what he would think about that. And we, we really started... Um, as a respite care family, which is a short-term care. There you go. Hop in. Dive in. Over that 17 months, we just kind of had a change of heart and decided, let's do this for full time. And then we've had the baby for four months. You hungry, buddy? He came home from the hospital. He was in the NICU for four months, and we got him straight from the NICU. So he came home with a heart and apnea monitor. Um, so that in itself was kind of scary and um, a little um, overwhelming. But you know, we kind of just leaned into the fact that, like, we're you know we're learning. You know, it, it's not going to be easy. God is giving us the power to do this from within that He has called us to do. You know. And everybody's been great supporting. Folks from the church or our friends. In some ways, it hasn't been disrupted because people just step up. We basically said the word and it would just be on our doorstep. <laughs> Peachtree has been amazing. It has really been. We feel the love. We feel the love. There's such a wealth of people and resources and, and so many people want to do something. They just don't know exactly the direction that they should take. And that's where I come in. We set up a support system, if you will. All volunteers, and I sort of organize the volunteers. So we provide meals, we provide childcare, sometimes laundry, sometimes errands. And then this is chicken white bean soup, and this is tomato basil. Too much. Suzanne has a huge family of her own, and so any kind of meals that we can provide to ease that that time of day, especially that, that witchy hour of five o'clock. The fact that Suzanne and Bert know that they have their small group behind them, they have their church supporting them is a huge answer to prayer. It has been great. It really has been such a blessing on our family in so many different ways. And I'm not gonna say it's all been a blessing. We've um, had some challenges, you know, about six weeks in, one of our kids asked us when he was going to be able to go back with his family because they didn't feel like this was our family. And I think, you know, the family dynamic changes. Um, even if you bring, you know, your own fourth child into it, the, the dynamic changes. But um, just last week, um, the same child, um, she, she was looking at the baby and playing with him, and she said, I can't wait until I'm a mommy, and I want to have a foster baby. So, you know, 
it, it was a great time for us to kind of have um, just a family conversation about, um, you know, really our, what our family, what so we I believe. I need just a few more diapers. Can you go grab some um, in both rooms, okay? All right, thank you. We love God, we serve others, and we have a purpose is our family motto. Can you I put them in this diaper bag? Thank you, you can put them right in there. You know, the fact that I think I was worried on the, at the front of us not having enough time with our kids, it's actually the quality of time has gotten to be that much better. Wizzy, how was the movie? I think that's something you could talk to them about as much as you want, but us trying to role model and show that, I think that's the real impact it'll have on them. For me, it's been about my own selfishness. So we're going through the foster training, which was a three-day 12-hour day program and pretty intense long days and towards the end the lady was talking about uh, how you deal with uh, once you've had the foster child in your home and then it's time to go back to mom and dad mom or dad uh, and that's the goal is to reunite with the parents and I sat there and I thought about it and I went up to the lady after and I said are you just setting us all up for heartbreak because that sounds like it's gonna be pretty rough like why do people do this and she looked at me and she said, Sonny, you think your heart's broken? Imagine how broken that child's heart is. And I thought, you know, this isn't about me. It's not about her. It's about that child. And you've got these thousands of children out there who don't have homes. Um, and that one really, I, I woke up on that one. And I think that's where I really felt the call that it's not about us, but it's about helping one of those children out, whatever it meant in terms of disruption. We have a chance to serve someone in a big way, and we can do this. We can do hard things. Night-night. Night-night. Yes, we can do hard things because we follow the one who sacrificed everything. So I have this crazy dream. What if every family at Peachtree had a relationship with a vulnerable child? What if every family, every single person, whether you're 25 or you're 85, had a relationship with a vulnerable kid? We would impact 4,000 children. In my dream, if I see you on Sunday morning and ask you about your family, you would not just tell me about your biological kids, but you would Tell me about the students you're sponsoring in Malawi or the Lamastad student that you tutor or being a big brother or being a big sister or maybe being a foster parent. Each one of us would have a relationship with a child that we would know their name and we would know their story, that we cared about, that we invested in, that we prayed for because we can do hard things. And I think that kind of disruptive compassion would not only impact those kids, but I think that it would impact us. If we just stopped passing by and said, yes, we're, we're all busy, we all have full lives, but this is why God has me here at this time in this place to be the presence of Jesus. You know, as we embrace this new mission, of restoring all things, we're not going to be able to do that with just some of us. It's an everyone kind of moment at Peachtree, a time to put our fear 
and our distraction behind us, believing that this is our moment, the moment when we can be a part of restoring all things, even ourselves. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this call to be a part of demonstrating your compassion in the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in and through each and one of us to uh, break down our outer veneer, Lord, and give us your heart to see the things that you see and draw us in to be a part of changing the things that are so broken in our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.